Welcome to this episode of Lifestyle Matters. Today, I am joined by Dr. Barton Jennings, a respiratory physician from Melbourne. Welcome, Barton. Thanks for joining us on the show. No worries, Savina. Thank you for having me. Great. So, Barton, I came across you when we you did some webinars online for um, doctors, really, about, you know, lifestyle factors and low-carb diets and things like that in terms of your realm of respiratory uh, medicine. And I thought that was quite interesting because it's not often we find lots of specialists interested in lifestyle medicine. So I thought maybe, maybe we might just start with just, could you tell us what, what sparked your interest and how you came about this journey of sort of focusing mm. more on lifestyle factors as part of your practice? Sure. Um, so it was actually in January of 2018, actually, I remember it quite clearly because uh, my wife and I were going to this local gym and the gym was run by a dietitian and a fitness trainer. And the dietitian practiced low-carb nutrition and she was running this six-week low-carb program. And my wife encouraged me to do it just, you know, as a, out of a interest and for health. And I told her that, no, I wasn't interested because I don't believe in it. It wasn't what I was taught at uni and went against everything pretty much that we had tried to do. But interestingly, in like probably the 10 years before that, I'd been trying to lose weight and I was exercising heaps, eating what I thought was the right thing to do. But my BMI always sat around 27, which is, you know, a bit overweight. And it got to the point where I thought, you know, actually, this is probably just normal for me. So I just didn't, wasn't too concerned about it. Anyway, so we joined this low carb program and in six weeks, I lost six kilograms and the next six weeks lost another four. And so I got down to about 80 and I've stayed there ever since. And so I thought, this is quite unbelievable what's just happening um, with this change from a nutrition point of view. I hadn't changed anything else. And so that really just sparked my interest. I thought, well, there has to be something in this. Why haven't I been taught this at uni? And, and so that's just really spurred me on to, to read more about it, to learn more about it. And um, the more I learn about it, the more interested I get, I guess. And that sort of also leads on to other areas of, of lifestyle, not just nutrition. And, and now I have, you know, really enjoy using that within my clinical practice because, uh, you know, it plays a big role in respiratory and sleep medicine. It's got a personal touch, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Did you, just out of curiosity, like, were you sort of, what you said you were struggling to lose weight, were you doing exercise at that point and had the exercise yeah. changed when you started doing your um, low-carb yeah. diet? Was there much of a change? No, no yeah. I didn't change my exercise yeah. at all. So I was, I was going, yeah. you know, do, to the gym doing sort of high-intensity uh, exercise three or four times a week, you know, going for a few runs and mm. quite a lot of exercise. But no, that didn't change yeah. at all. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing, isn't it? It's like, you know, they talk about losing weight loss, 80% is actually nutrition and the other 20% is your exercise. So that's just, you know, case in point really. Um, yeah. And that's great. Yeah. So I guess how, sorry. I think that's very true. I think, I mean, I say to patients who want to lose weight, like you can exercise as much as you like. Exercise is very good for you. has lots of health benefits. <laughs> I always, you know, promote and recommend that people should be keeping active and exercise, but it's actually not the thing that's going to achieve weight loss. That's the that's what you ate. Yeah, exactly. So I guess since you talked about ex you touched on exercise, let's talk about exercise. How given your background as a respiratory physician, um, what sort of advice would you give your patients in terms of when it comes to exercise and what the benefits are um in you know respiratory function? Well I think um everybody will benefit from exercise. I think it's obviously very important for overall health. 
And it doesn't matter whether you're a young, perfectly well person with no respiratory disease or, you know, someone who's really quite old with quite severe respiratory disease, every, everybody will benefit from exercise. And so if we consider those patients with respiratory disease, you know, one of the main problems is breathlessness. And although exercise in itself is not necessarily going to improve lung function, it does improve breathlessness because it improves fitness, improves cardiovascular fitness, improves muscle strength, uh, and improves endurance, and so it improves your ability to, to exercise. And, and shortness of breath is very limiting and, and affects people's life so much. And sometimes if there's lung disease, there's, there's so, only so much that can be done to improve the lung function from a lung disease point of view. And once we've maximised those treatments, then patients are often left still breathless. And so that's where you know, exercise and conditioning is really important. It was just not uh, just one type of exercise, is it? It's a mixture of cardio and um, aerobic exercise and also stretching and relaxation, like, you know, practicing deep breathing and things like that too is mm. part of exercise, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, no, certainly. I think I think different people would benefit from different types of exercise. Um, I always like to think that probably the best exercise for most people is doing something that they enjoy doing because if they enjoy doing it, they're more likely to do it. Um, mm. Sometimes... In people who are especially a bit more elderly and might have underlying lung disease, doing that within a, a program is often very beneficial. So pulmonary rehab, so they can have supervision for their exercise, which gives them confidence that they might not have if they were just exercise on their own. Um, and breathing exercises are really important, actually. It's a area of interest of, of mine too, because I think that sometimes people who get breathless, it may be to do with their pattern of breathing sometimes as well as or instead of their actual underlying lung function. And when people get breathless, they tend to pull air in from the top of their chest and their pattern of breathing changes and it can cause breathlessness. And certainly breathing exercises, as you say, can improve that. Yeah, and I guess just going hand in hand with that, uh, which ties into the other lifestyle factor that I often talk about with you know um, lung diseases, anxiety, um, and breathlessness mm. and the subjective feeling of breathlessness, many are, you know, they might be mildly breathless from their lung disease, but they're anxious yeah. about getting breathless. And that just is yeah. like a vicious cycle um, that goes exactly. hand in hand. So um, exactly. stress management is the other thing which comes down to the whole lifestyle thing too. Um, stress management yeah. and practicing deep breathing um, is yeah. also another aspect of it. Practicing deep breathing exercises like that is actually good mindfulness too. And and practicing mindfulness is very good for anxiety and just getting people to do diaphragmatic breathing exercises not only improves their pattern of breathing, reduces the anxiety as well. And so can sort of undo that vicious cycle of anxiety causing more abnormal pattern of breathing, which causes more breathlessness, that causes more anxiety. And um, if we can undo that vicious cycle, then people feel much better. I know sometimes, you know, we talk about mindfulness breathing. Do you have um, any sort of guides as to where we, or ideas where we could point people towards to in terms of mindfulness breathing? I use a handout that I just use from, um, I think it's Cleveland University handout. It's really useful. It just is a very simple way to demonstrate to patients how to do diaphragmatic breathing. Um, mm -hmm. I also work with a respiratory physiotherapist and we did a uh, video on about this on YouTube as well as a part of our patient education talks about breathing and our physio Ali was uh, fantastic in taking all of the patients through on the video through different breathing exercises, um, which I think that they really benefited from.
Yeah, that's great. And the other resource that I use sometimes uh, are exercise physiologists, um, the ones that you know who are really good with it. Um, They're quite good in terms of guiding patients through it, especially those with, you know, quite moderate to severe emphysema or COPD. Um, Mm. I find that they're really helpful. It gives them a lot of guidance and confidence in doing exercise because many I find are like, you know, I'm, I'm too breathless. I can't do mm. exercise. What do you mean do exercise? Yeah. Um, yeah. And referring them to these people who actually specialize in these areas, I find them really yeah. helpful. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. I actually use exercise physiologists quite a bit for exactly that mm. reason. And I think there's a, that's another vicious cycle of people who are breathless tend to do less exercise. So they tend to avoid doing things that make them breathless. And then they become you know, more and more inactive and that's a vicious cycle and exercise physiology or exercising with uh, supervision can be really helpful to try and break that as well. Yeah, yeah. So moving on to the next point where you said they become more breathless and they become, you know, they're more worried about exercising and they become mm. more inactive and that leads to obviously sedentary lifestyle and weight gain potentially. Mm. Um, so, well, let's talk about weight gain and weight, the impact of weight on respiration. Um, what yeah, what so, is your what pulls of wisdom around that? <laughs> <laughs> so as I was saying before, you know there are some people who are breathless, uh, and whether they have underlying lung or heart disease, sometimes there's nothing more that can be done to improve their lung or heart function, but they still remain breathless. And so then, if they're overweight, then weight loss is always going to be able to help their breathlessness. So, and often patients. Um, their weight does contribute to their breathlessness. So weight loss is always, always very, very beneficial. And that's obviously where, you know, improvements in nutrition can really help with weight loss. And, and people only have to lose sometimes a little bit of weight can be quite effective in improving exercise tolerance. It's um it's one of those things that I, um, when I refer to a respiratory physician, my patients who have, you know, chronic lung disease um, with their breathlessness that I am, you know, at wit's end not sure how to manage this anymore. And, you know, mm. half the time they come back saying, well, they just need to lose weight because it's just the fact that that obesity is just actually causing the breathlessness. And there's nothing we can do in terms of medications because we've maximized therapy, we've maximized everything else. And it's mm. about weight loss. Um, and if you think about it, you know, if you have a huge gut, it's pushing on your diaphragm and that just reduces your lung volume and then reduces your ventilation and then you become more yeah. breathless so it's yeah yeah certainly, it's all just yeah. certainly once obesity person. gets to that point yeah but it certainly does put that external uh, pressure on the lung as well as you say yeah yeah and i think one yeah. of the problems yeah. is that often like people will say you know weight loss is uh, is beneficial and that's fantastic and that's really wonderful but we actually have to educate patients about how to lose weight because i don't think a lot of them know and there's so much you know misinformation about there out there about diet and nutrition and you know, when people say, you know, they have cereal for breakfast and, and fruit and they think that they're doing the right thing and can't see why they're losing weight, and you tell them that, you know, you should probably have bacon and eggs for breakfast and, you know, just not on toast, you know, they can't believe it. Like, they're really shocked because it goes against what we've been told for so long. But if they do it, you know, they actually do lose weight. So I think telling, edu- educating people or telling them that they should lose weight, you know, is, is okay is, is sometimes correct but we really need to help people know how to, how to do it yeah yeah when you think about it cereal and things the amount of sugar content that's in there it sounds mm. like a healthy thing i guess you know it's like it goes back to the ads from many years ago you know <laughs> kellogg's conflicts it's like your healthy breakfast what when you yeah. should look at it the amount of sugar that's actually in the package it's pretty pretty yeah. impressive 
Um, I'd be choosing, you know, rolled oats, for example, or, you know, steel cut oats, one of those high fiber diets also potentially. I mean, everyone's got different ideas on terms of what diet suits, but I guess, you know, I think we're on the same page where we're saying the carbs and the, well, the simple carbs. Avoidance, the of, sugar and avoidance of processed foods. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Well, I think that's the same tune that everyone sings out in the end. I was just going to say breakfast is the most important meal of the day is just a saying that Kellogg's came up with to sell more breakfast cereal. Breakfast is not at the most important meal of the day. As a matter of fact, if you wake up in the morning and you're not hungry, you're probably best better off not eating breakfast. <laughs> I mean, I, I yep. never have breakfast when I feel hungry in the morning. So, I mean, prolonging yeah. that fast is actually quite healthy. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, well, for myself, I have to say, like, when I did intermittent fasting, like, um, mm. well, I had to stop because I was losing a bit too much of weight. But, you know, intermittent fasting actually made me feel function better. Like, I had a clearer yeah. mind. Um, so yeah. I do it a few days a week just because of the functionality, how I feel doing it. Um, yeah, and it's amazing how productive you become at the end of the, you know, during the day. You don't yeah. need that sugar content, that sugar load first thing in the morning necessarily. No, no. well, you never yeah. need it. But. <laughs> <laughs> so um, do you have any other advice for in terms of nutrition? So obviously you have a big um, interest in low-carb, high-fat diet. Hmm. What sort of advice do you talk to your patients about? this uh, i just firstly i think it's important to explain why it is that that is um, the best way for us to eat and because i think people sometimes don't quite understand that because we've always been told that if you eat fat you will get fat but in actual fact the problem with uh the inability to lose weight is that if there is insulin circulating in our body insulin causes fat storage and in the presence of insulin we, we're not going to be able to lose weight and insulin is secreted in response to glucose or sugar. But not just sugar like in table sugar or in cereal, but also in bread, rice, potatoes. Um, it, these are just glucose molecules stuck together. So once we eat these things, those glucose molecules come apart and they're just glucose. And they go into the blood. And we know that we need to keep our blood glucose very stable because if our blood glucose goes up, then that's what, when we are diabetic. So insulin is used to maintain our blood glucose. But the more carbohydrate that we put in, the more glucose we put into our body, the more insulin we need to secrete to maintain that even blood glucose. So about 10 years before our sugar starts to go up and we're recognized to be diabetic, our insulin levels have been rising. And so what we really need to do is if we stop putting the glucose in or stop putting the carbohydrates into our body, then our insulin levels will come down. And as our insulin levels come down, that will allow our body to use fat for energy and it'll start burning the fat. And so we actually have to stop putting the carbohydrates in to be able to burn the fat. So you're basically sort of producing a state of ketosis, essentially. Um, yeah. 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 Um, and, you know, the other thing I, when I did my um, um, reading on that, it, there was another thing, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but what I also read was that carbs compared to fat produce a lot more carbon dioxide compared to, you know, with the amount of oxygen being used, carbon dioxide has produced more when you trying to metabolize carbs compared to fat mm. now when you put that into context with someone with chronic lung disease who've got like high levels of co2 carbon dioxide that doesn't actually help the whole scenario That's um, right. so, so that would be another reason to go down the path of low carb high fat diet yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, that's right. So in people, especially in people with severe lung disease, it can put additional pressure on their ventilatory system. Yeah. Um, so moving on, how would you feel, how would you, what's your take on sleep and um, and chronic lung disease or just respiratory function itself? 
Well, I think that I sort of think of like general health in so in with four pillars of health, and I think sleep is um, one of them, and and it's probably the one that sometimes is forgotten about. Uh, the other one is exercise, nutrition, and mental health, and they all play together. And I think that it's if it, if people have an issue with their mental health, then it's going to be difficult to correct that and improve your mental health if you don't have good quality sleep. Because everybody knows if you you know sleep poorly or have a few nights of bad night's sleep, it always affects how you're feeling yourself. The same as uh, exercise. If you have good quality sleep, you're much more likely to be able to get exercise because you feel a bit better in yourself, you have a bit more energy, you're more likely to get out there and be able to exercise. Um, and then obviously we've spoken about nutrition playing a role in that as well. So I think sleep is really, really important and, and under-recognized. And I think sometimes if someone's got a problem with their sleep, it's probably the best place to start because if we can correct their sleep, so if there's an underlying sleep disorder like sleep apnea, you know, treating this, that to improve their quality of sleep or ensuring that they're getting adequate amount of sleep, then we get the benefit of that throughout the day in terms of how the person feels. And then it's much easier to you know, make those other changes. So, you know, try and get more exercise, try and eat the right things. When when people have poor quality sleep, they're much more likely to eat carbohydrate because it gives you quick energy. So if you're going to try and get someone to stop eating carbohydrate, you better off to improve their quality of sleep first, and then it's easier to make those changes. Same as, you know, smoking cessation and things like that. So I think starting with sleep is really, really important. Yeah. I, know. I have a toddler when I've been woken up many times overnight. The next morning, my diet's pretty, pretty, pretty worrying. <laughs> It's just because you're just craving the bad things. It's just natural. Um, but yeah, yeah, so sleep apnea is one of those things, isn't it? And also if you've got untreated anxiety, as you alluded to, like, you know, you know, you get yeah. your middle insomnia, you wake up in the middle of the night, anxious, worrying yeah. about things, that's going to disrupt your sleep. Um, in right. many episodes ago, um, Fergal and I, one of my other colleagues, we discussed about mm. what discussed what happens during sleep and how our brain repairs itself, how areas like our, our amygdala and things repair itself and things regenerate. And, you know, you're getting rid of all the, the bad stuff and sort of regenerating and repairing processes. Yeah. If that doesn't, that has to happen once you've had at least three, four hours of sleep. If you're having interrupted sleep, that's not going to happen. Um, yeah. And that's what you're also pointing out too. That's why we, we exercise better because we have more energy during the day. Um, and the other thing that happens is hormone changes too because all that is happening and that will disrupt our hormone balances, you know, if we don't get good sleep. Um, and that would result in us also sort of stacking on weight and conserving more energy because our body's just not had that rest, well, rest, because we know it's actually not actual true rest when you're sleeping. Um, it's our, our repairing process. But yeah, that's right. sleep exactly. is so important, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. sleep deprivation increases mortality. <laughs> so that's exactly um, increases yeah. the you know, risk of heart disease, increases the risk of lots of things. Yeah. I remember there was a study with healthcare workers, wasn't there, um, some years ago about shift work. And, mm -hmm. you know, not getting that night sleep and things and how it was associated with the risk of heart disease and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. No, I think shift work is not very good for people, actually, because of that con continually changing their body clock. Um, and, and circadian rhythm and body clock is probably another under-recognized problem with sleep, where some people have difficulty sleeping and it might be because their body clock is not aligned. And so the typical situation, say, is a teenager who's up late at night, you know, playing video games and things and sleeps in all all through the day they've got like this there's not a problem with their sleep it's a problem with their body clock that's shifted forwards and sometimes that can also affect people's quality of sleep 
Yeah, yeah. So we've covered most of the factors already. Um, the only thing left is really smoking, um, you know, drugs, <laughs> alcohol. Um, just in a nutshell, just because we're running out of time, what's the one thing you would say? I mean, I think everyone knows how it affects our <laughs> lung function and things, but what's your quick pearls of wisdom around that? those things? Um, yeah, I mean, obviously the, the single most important thing that a person who currently smokes can do is to, to try and stop smoking. I think from a doctor's point of view, it's also important to recognise how difficult that is and how addictive it is and how difficult it is for patients. And sometimes people feel really self-conscious about the fact that they smoke. And so making people feel bad about it or telling them they might die or they're going to, you know, I don't think is helpful, but trying to really understand why people do it and to try and really support them to try and quit um, is, is really helpful. And sometimes if people have quit before, you know, I'll tell them that you're in much higher you know, much lot more likely to be able to quit again if you have had successful quit attempts in the past and gone back to cigarettes. If they've quit before, then, you know, it's, it's useful to find out, well, what happened last time that allowed you to stop? Did you use nicotine patches or did you use some medication or hypnosis or something? Because if something's worked for someone before, it might well work for them again, so it's worthwhile trying again. Um, so I think anything that we can do to try and help and support people to try and quit smoking is, you know, obviously far and away the most important thing we can do. From an overall health point of view, I think you mentioned a very good point. Um, you know about being um, being aware as practitioners that we should not be too you know too rash and too quick to judge. I think a non judgmental approach is so important, um, yeah. and being slow with it. And the fact that it's fine to take your t- time to think about it as long as you know what the risks are. But take your time and get there. And then if you fail, it's yeah. okay because there's no such thing yeah. as a failure because that's part of your stages of change, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. And in fact, just in the last week, I've had two patients have come back to me saying, right, you know, you spoke to me about that. I think I'm ready. Yeah, <laughs> and it's so amazing because, you know, it's not actually forcing yeah. it on. It's just the fact yeah. that you have the conversation. And I think it's important to keep having those conversations. Yeah. I don't think anybody yeah. smokes and doesn't know that it's bad for them. <laughs> so I don't think telling them yeah. it's bad for them is going to help. And I don't think anyone quits smoking because they're told that they're going to die. I actually don't think that that's motivating mm-hmm. for people, but I think yeah. that supporting them uh, as and raising the, planting the seed and allowing them to come back, you know, that's really successful. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Nice story. <laughs> yeah, no, I think one of the most <laughs> motivating factor I find is uh, finances. <laughs> yeah. Gosh, true. so expensive. All right. So, well, thank you so much for joining us, Barton. It was lovely talking to Thanks. you today. Um, any last minute things that you'd like to just sort of highlight Thank or are we... Thank you for having me. No, I think that's a no. nice overall sort of summary of <laughs> yeah, what yeah. I think to do. Yeah. Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. No worries. Thank you. That's all for today's episode of Lifestyle Matters. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.